0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. This episode of the Sportsman's Empire is brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Since 1952, Interstate Batteries has been evoking compassion and a trustworthy spirit into the surrounding communities. Interstate Batteries is a mission-driven company fueled by purpose and guided by their values. If you need help locating a specific battery, stop into your local Interstate Batteries retail store and speak with a battery specialist. They even offer cell phone repairs. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the No Low Ballers podcast. I'm your host, Logan Medish of High Caliber History. As always, we've got some Go Wild and Gum Broker crew with us. We've got Alan and Dan and a very special guest today. We have Adam Kraut, the executive director of the Second Amendment Foundation with us. Adam, thanks for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me, guys.
1: Absolutely. So, obviously, there's a lot going on in our industry right now. We've had a lot of wins, and we've been kicked a little bit. Um, and so we, we kind of want to talk, what in your mind are you seeing
2: that have been some of our biggest wins lately? Sure. So I think, you know, post-Bruin, Bruin, everybody says Bruin changed the landscape. And it's true, but it's also not. So if you look at the Second Amendment, uh, you know, the, the legal pathway, if you will, a lot of what Bruin said was said in 2008 and 2008. Heller, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the test that all these circuit courts and lower courts were supposed to be applying. And, and Bruin really came in and flattened the landscape again and said, for the last 13 years, you guys have been doing this wrong. Um, so post-Bruin, you know, obviously Bruin also re- really went heavily into carry. Uh, which was also addressed in Heller, but Bruin, I think we can say, is the case that really made carry the the thing. But post Bruin, um, you've been seeing judges that were Democratic appointees uh, coming to the conclusion that these laws that were being challenged in a number of different contexts is, uh, contexts are unconstitutional. Um, and so I think you know we're we're living in a different world right now. I think you're going to see some courts try to figure out how to get cute with the Bruin analysis and the whole. Analogous, It doesn't have to be a carbon copy of the law that was in existence at the time. Mm-hmm. They're also fighting about whether 1791 or the, the, the adoption of the 14th Amendment, uh, whether that time period is the correct one for the historical analysis. So I think as we continue to go down this pathway, we're going to start to see some courts try to get a little cute with it. Um, but the circuit courts have been very interesting to see. Um, there's been some very good decisions out of those and, of course, some that have been not so great so far. And, uh, you know, we're, we're very excited for the future in the, the legal arena right now. So for, you know, maybe some of
3: uh, our listeners who aren't quite as gun geeky as the people in this room, can you give a 30 second version of what Bruin, because we hear that all the time, sure. but what is, what is brewing?
2: Yeah, so I think maybe we'll even take a step further back, right? So when we're talking about the the context of uh, the legal arena and Second Amendment decisions, you have Miller in the nineteen thirties that deal dealt with short barrel shotguns, and for all intents and purposes, we can kind of just ignore that. So oh, really, we ranted on a soapbox about that one. <laughs> we yeah. sure did. Oh yeah, almost a full so podcast. On so, so really, you know, the world kind of began with Heller in two thousand eight, and what Heller said was that the the right to bear keep and bear arms is an individual right. It's untethered to militia service. Um, And, you know, it established the test for the Second Amendment analysis, which at the time, which is still the test, was text as informed by the nation's history and tradition. Uh, Two years later, you get McDonald versus City of Chicago, a SAF case. And that one incorporated the Second Amendment against the states via the 14th Amendment, the Due Process Clause. So all that meant, for plain English purposes, is that We can now sue states and cities and municipalities for Second Amendment violations, and under the federal Constitution, not doing anything at the state level. You get Catano in 2016, talks about stun guns. Bruin, uh, 2022. Uh, And so Bruin... Post-Heller, post-McDonald, the circuit courts went, okay, your test, Supreme Court, great, but we're going to change it a little bit, and they created a two-step analysis, and a lot of times what they did was, is this conduct burden, does it burden the Second Amendment right? If yes, cool, let's check this test, and what we'll do is imply intermediate scrutiny. We talk about levels of scrutiny, there's three main different ones. Intermediate's the the middle one, Mm -hmm. and almost always these courts would find that, yeah, the government's interest is better than the right, and therefore we're going to uphold this law as constitutional. Bruin came back and uh, addressed you know, the right to, to bear arms outside the home and said, yes, there is a right to bear arms outside the home. New York's law is uh, crazy and not going to stand. And the test, again, is text as informed by history and tradition. Uh, they went through this and said it twice in blinking lights, in the opinion, <laughs> to really kind of, <laughs> to really emphasize that, hey, we're telling you what the test is. We told you back in 2008, and now we're really making sure you understand it. So there's a little more than thirty seconds, but that's kind of the overview. Yeah. No, that's I, you know, great. They're never really exciting
3: to read, but like I got to say, the, you know, to your point, some of the verbiage in the in the the brewing or Bruin ruling was kind of funny to read. They they were pretty adamant in their decision making
2: on yeah. this. Yeah, Th-
3: Thomas was
1: not
2: having it. <laughs> yeah,
1: and you know, and Bruin's been really interesting because you had, you touched on briefly. You know, talk about you know specific dates and what dates are we going with, and you know, and as as an arms historian, like that's Bruin's been huge for for me personally because it's I've. Had so many different lawyers reaching out to me trying to, you know, well, can you tell me more about this? When did this come in? What are you know? And so it's really, from my perspective, it's been really fascinating watching people have to learn the firearm history behind mm-hmm. things to truly understand how to work it into the preservation of our rights. So that's been neat to see as well, you know? It only took like
3: half a dozen court cases and a, a pile of money to make them <laughs> want to do that, but yeah. I mean. <laughs> It's probably smart.
2: (laughs) Unfortunately, that's the way some of this goes. And, you know, you look post-Bruin, so uh, New York, New Jersey, California, um, and other states were okay. People can now bear arms outside the home. Our old permitting schemes where we prevented the majority of people from getting them or made it onerous and people just didn't do it. We need to solve this problem. So what they did was they passed all these new sensitive places laws where they basically said, okay, um, yes, you have a right to bear arms outside the home. And yes, this application process that we used to have, which was arduous, we're going to maybe make it a little more simpler, which, you know, more on that in a minute, (laughs) maybe. Um, But they went, okay. We're just going to make all of these places possible off limits. So really, your right to bear arms doesn't actually exist in in theory, right. or in practice. Rather, in theory, it exists. But uh, so that's led to. I think we have five sensitive places challenges now. Two were in New York. One was in Jersey. One's in California. There was one against the city in California before the state did its thing. And there might be one other one that I just can't recall off the top of my head. So, the the states are playing games with the Bruin decision, which uh, we expected. Which we expected. Uh, New York wasted no time whatsoever. New Jersey was. <laughs> not far behind Uh, and that's you know I think really that's going to be a a major battleground on on things Uh, you know the assault weapons bans magazine capacity stuff that we've been dealing with for years that stuff that uh, we currently um, have we have uh, eight assault weapons ban challenges six magazine capacity challenges um, in our assault weapons ban challenge in the fourth circuit actually that one uh, was up on appeal while Bruin was being decided so the Supreme Court held it bruin decision came down supreme court granted cert in our case and i think three other ones uh, vacated the circuit court decisions and remanded it back to them so all that means is that whatever the circuit court said the supreme court said nope we're throwing that out the window and we're sending it back to you for proceedings consistent with what we just said in bruin a lot of those circuit courts kicked those cases down to the district courts to basically start fresh um, but our assault weapons ban case in the Fourth Circuit, uh, the Fourth Circuit actually capped. So that was briefed. It was argued over a year ago. And just the last week, uh, the Fourth Circuit said, actually, we're going to hear this en banc, which means as a court mm-hmm. as a whole, as opposed to a three-judge panel, okay. which is extremely rare. Really? Uh, and they didn't. They didn't even let the panel opinion come out. Typically what would happen is the panel would release its opinion and then a party would usually petition the court and the court would then vote whether to do that or not. Sometimes the court will say on its own, yeah, we're going to rehear it. So not a good sign necessarily for circuits where Colby came out of where they created their own test. (laughs) Now,
3: this is just an amateur watching, but... The history for years was that the Supreme Court just wouldn't touch a gun case. The fact that they took Miller and McDonald was shocking at the time. I'm sorry, Heller and McDonald mm-hmm. at the time was shocking. Uh, it seems like they're more open to them these days. Is that a wrong, or does it seem like that you're getting a little bit more traction there?
2: You know, that's a that's a good question. Um, so. Why and how the Supreme Court operates as it does is a mystery to a lot of people. There are people far smarter than me. You look <laughs> at the folks over at Scotus SCOTUSblog uh, that, you know, have clerked in the court. Uh, there's some secret inner workings as to how things go. But generally speaking, I think particularly with the justices that are around, particularly Thomas, um, now that Heller and McDonald and Bruin have been decided, they're very, I think, careful about granting cert on cases if they don't think that the votes will be there to go in the direction where they think the law should be constitutionally. And I think that's probably true on both sides of the aisle. So while it is frustrating, um, we don't know what those discussions are. We don't know whether the justices are looking and saying, okay, you know, we've, this area of the law is fixed in, in this capacity. And if we grant cert here, I think that maybe some of my colleagues would be inclined to cut this short based on their view of the, the constitutional interpretation. So it's really kind of anybody's guess, but I do think that that is some, you know, consideration that's given to that stuff.
3: Well, because that was always the, the hubbub around Heller when it first went out. It's like, you know, the community had been begging for a case like this, but some of the, the larger organizations in our industry, shall we say, were kind of opposed to it because if, if, if Heller had gone wrong,
2: it yes. would have been crushing. It would have been a very different world. And, and their <laughs> yes. their
3: theory was it's better to kind of live under the boot we're under now rather than have two boots in our throats, where obviously smarter parties went, yeah, but this is a really good case. <laughs> we, we can do a hell of a lot of good with this case.
2: And it, and it was a really good case. And, you know, as we continue to see the, the historical... Uh, Stuff come out because I can't think of a better word than stuff. Unfortunately, <laughs> I know, I know that's the legal term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. yeah. jargon. It's in Black's yeah. Law Dictionary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> added just now. Um, but as we continue to look at the history surrounding the Second Amendment, you do see very clearly that it is an individual right. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's if it wasn't confirmed back in two thousand eight, it's set in stone now based mm-hmm. on all the evidence that's come out. Um, and so I, I think that you know the the fact that the court did take Heller. And did solidify the fact that it is an individual right unconnected to militia service really helps solidify the constitutional right that was guaranteed to Americans.
3: Yeah, and it was a, I mean, it was a radically different court then too. Yes. I mean that's yeah. that's what, if when it, we were when the 16 election was going on and people were you know debating who to vote for or not. I I said I was not voting for a president. I was voting for a Supreme Court. And I like to think yeah. that I've been proven right over at least that four-year period of what that court has sure. has become from a, a more conservative, more fundam- you know, fundamental American-minded court than what it might have been before that. Yeah. It's probably still activist. We're never going to get away from an activist court, but it's at least, in my mind, the right way of an activist court. Sure.
1: Well, and, and Adam, one thing that we for sure want to touch on is, uh, you know, it's, it's 2024, and that's a big year for SAF. You guys are celebrating 50 years right. Um, which which is both amazing <laughs> and sad because it means that SAF has been fighting the good fight for half a century. Yeah. <laughs> so one, thank you guys for yes. that. We you know we, we appreciate everything that you guys are doing. But two, uh, you know, look, talk to us a little bit. You know, if you can historically, you know what what is going on. You know, in 1974 and and in the early years that brings
2: SAF into the picture. Sure. So so. Uh, SAF was founded by Alan Gottlieb Um, Alan at the time worked for Young Americans for Freedom Uh, I believe it was the national group and he was tapped to go up to the Pacific Northwest where that chapter up there actually dealt with the right to keep and bear arms that um, ultimately became the Citizens Committee for the right to keep and bear arms in 1971 he had this vision of elevating a case to the Supreme Court. That was his idea. And so in 1974, SAF was founded. And those early years were spent um, kind of getting together the right people to help make that uh, a possibility. There was a lot of foundational work that needed to be done. 1974, unconnected to SAF, but same year, oddly enough, uh, there was a law review article published uh, by Don Cates, which uh, theorized or really spelled out, I shouldn't say theorized, but spelled out that the Second Amendment right is an individual right untethered to militia service. So those early years were uh, spent with a lot of scholarly stuff, a lot of working with lawyers, uh, trying to figure out and get the the proper um, legal footing to start to be able to file lawsuits. Uh, There was a lot of public education going on at the time, uh, newsletters, things like that. You get some lawsuits. Um, I think the first one, if I recall off the top of my head, was either late 70s or I think it was in the late 70s. Uh, and then there were a couple in the 80s. Uh, notably in the 80s, there was a challenge to the City of New Haven, Connecticut's uh, total handgun ban, mm-hmm. which SAF won. Um, they won that in 1982. In that same year is when they challenged then Mayor Dianne Feinstein's handgun ban in San Francisco, which they also won. Uh, and, you know, th- throughout the years, there was a handful more of uh, various litigations. We actually had a book published uh, for, I think, the 25th anniversary that has some of this history, which made my life a heck of a lot easier <laughs> I bet. Uh, because I didn't <laughs> have to dig through files to find all this stuff. Like <laughs>
1: drinking from a fire hose. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, you know, the, the organization... Uh, put on gun rights policy conference along with the citizens yep. committee for the right to keep and bear arms, uh, the legal scholars conference. Uh, so a lot of this work before we get to the actual litigation, which, you know, existed certainly pre Heller, but once Heller hit, it was, you know, floodgates opened. And, uh, since the organization's inception, we've been involved in over 260 cases. Wow. Uh, that's either as a party as an amicus or funding a lawsuit where we, we were not a party. Uh, I actually filed a lawsuit, this morning, uh, before I came here, <laughs> so we now have 58 active cases. <laughs> just, just another
3: average Tuesday, you know. right? Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, th- this one, this one, uh, I've been planning uh, for over a year. I've been I've worked wow. on the complaint. I had a hard time trying to find the right plaintiff for it, but uh, I'll tell you guys about it. The PR is not even out yet. I'm waiting for the court to actually docket it on the, the correct this goes docket. Live, yes, uh, right. so we filed a lawsuit challenging the uh, federal prohibition on medical marijuana users. Uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, is where we brought the challenge in the Western district. So it's a lawsuit that, um, you know, there's currently in Pennsylvania, about half a million people that are disenfranchised from their second amendment rights because they choose to use, uh, that as a medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you look at that on a national level, uh, 38 states have legalized it for medicinal purposes. So there's millions of Americans that are, have to literally choose between medicine or the exercise of their rights. Uh, and we didn't think that that's okay. So we're starting here and we'll see where it goes from there. Oh. So can you explain, you know, so
1: 38 states Mm -hmm. and you choose to to file in Pennsylvania. Can you explain, you know,
2: why Pennsylvania and not one of the 37 other states? Sure. So Pennsylvania, uh, well, (laughs) a number of reasons. One, finding a plaintiff, Uh, also circuit selection. Mm -hmm. So this is a lawyer thing regardless of what area of law you're in. Uh, If you're looking for, you know, particularly with constitutional issues, you're looking for circuits uh, that are either going to give you a favorable decision or alternatively, if you're, you're looking to get something to the supreme court you're looking for circuit splits so the marijuana issue in particular uh, there's a lot more states where you can bring those challenges versus like assault weapons ban you know you look at assault weapons bans they're in you know california oregon washington that's all in the ninth circuit right you, you know so um pennsylvania's in the third circuit it's if i was ranking circuits it would be like second tier wouldn't be the first choice okay. uh, the fifth circuit right now is um. The first choice, uh, particularly if you look at <laughs> what they did, I mean, with Rahimi, um, I don't think that there's a law that they are going to uphold. So, Fifth Circuit case would be a, a good one, uh, the Eighth Circuit, but it would just it happened to be where I was looking to bring a lawsuit. It was one of the places I had identified. Um, my plaintiff in this is a uh, duly elected district attorney. Oh, uh, yeah. So That's not, a, not, interesting. A bad yeah. not a bad plaintiff. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. So that all, that all plays into it. Very interesting. Very
3: cool. I want to go back to something you talked on a second ago because where I first became intimately aware with the, the Second Amendment Foundation and the Citizens Committee was the Gun Rights Policy Conference. Mm-hmm. I was, when I was working my master's degree in communications, um, I was looking at how the media portrays firearms and stumbled across. I think it was Tom Gresham put me onto the conference and I attended, I think, the first one in Cincinnati. That is an amazing event that more people need to know about. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the history of that and, 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 and what your goals are with those?
2: Yeah, so the, the this last year's, I think, was the 38th annual Gun Rights Policy Conference. And so, you know, pre-internet, best way to do things is networking in person. So the whole point behind Gun Rights Policy Conference was to get lawyers, scholars, uh, people involved in state groups, activists all together uh, to talk about things currently, where they stood, what people were working on sharing strategies tactics uh exchange of ideas creating new ideas and and things to pursue uh and that's been going on for the last 38 years so you know we get uh, in, in attendance for speakers we get you know the attorneys that are litigating these cases across the country. We get uh, people that are involved politically that are making things happen. We get the the leaders of state groups who are you know taking the fight to their state legislatures and keeping people informed. Uh, in addition to the attendees who show up that are people that are really interested. And then at the end of the day, you all have a chance to actually go meet these people. Yeah. And you know if you're interested in meeting, you know if you have heroes or what have you, people you want to meet that are involved in the space, you can do that there. It, it was amazing
3: because, as you said, you go see these, I mean, almost iconic people to hear from. I mean, Masada, you yeah. would speak, Alan Gura. I think the year I went, we had, or the first year I went, we had Ron, Paul, and Rand Paul. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, it, it was it was crazy. And then afterwards, you just kind of hang out with them. But getting to know all these like-minded people across the country, that's where I got to know Al- Alan Galley really close. Because as I told him, he's, he spells his name wrong, but that's fine. <laughs> I, I, you know, I let him slide on that one. Um, but we, we took that back to my home state of Nebraska and used a lot of the materials we came out of that to help pass our carry bill. Because mm-hmm. we were the 48, the 50 states to get, you know, Nebraska, great gun state, whatever. <laughs> um, but that was really instrumental in helping form uh, what later became the uh, Nebraska Firearms Owners Association. Okay. And uh, uh, just a lot of the, the groundwork was laid through things that we learned at the policy conference. And, I mean, it, if I remember right, it's still... Is it still free to attend? Yes, I mean, it's it, if you are interested in helping your state organization or you know move the needle at all on gun rights, I encourage people to sign up and go. It is a, it is an amazing event. Um, the materials, the education, the networking it's it's crazy. It's, it's a great event. It's going to be in San Diego this year, and, and it doesn't suck to go to San Diego. It's California, but San Diego is the. The good little bit of, of, <laughs> of California. Well, it,
2: it is it is California, um, but we're also not afraid to take that to places where they are hostile to government. You've gun done guns, outside sure. Chicago
3: a few years ago, didn't you?
2: Uh, it was in Chicago prior to me being at the organization and prior to me ever attending a GRPC. Um, the ones I had attended, I think, were twice in uh, Phoenix and once in <coughs> Dallas. Okay. Well, I'd um, imagine the people that would be most passionate or most
3: aware of the impact on Second Amendment rights would be the people in the
2: restrictive states, yeah. the restricted areas. Yes. Yeah. So the
3: people behind enemy lines are the ones who need this help and
2: support. Definitely. Right. right. No, yeah. a- absolutely. And we have no problem going there and, and working with those people. Um, and it, it really is kind of an interesting uh, occurrence in the, in the gun rights world, if you will, where a lot of people say, oh, you're from California. Like, Forget you guys. Well, that's actually a huge problem because, number one, California has a ton of gun owners, mm. <laughs> more than a lot of states. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, a lot of the ideas that originate from California get exported. Yes. it's coming your way, whether uh, you yep. like it or not.
3: I mean, the safe storage laws, the handgun rosters, it, yeah, as California goes, the other restrictive states te- seem to follow. So yep. it would make sense. That's kind of the head to cut and off.
2: And it's not It's not just the other restrictive states. I mean, mm-hmm. you look at Texas. Texas isn't solid red anymore. No. You, mm-hmm. you, know, you look at Arizona. It's not solid red anymore. And you just... That stuff keeps creeping out, and as sure. time goes on and demographics change, like just because you don't live in a state like that today, doesn't mean not going to be like that in that's ten years. Point. Right?
3: We, yeah. We we before the show came on, bemoaning how Colorado used to be one of our favorite places to go, and yep. now I don't know if I'm legal in California or Colorado, let alone <laughs> anything I own. So.
1: <laughs> well, you know, and, and I think that's a good segue talking about you know things that are legal to own. So brace yourself, Adam. <laughs> Literally, brace yourself. Let's talk pistol braces. Sure. Um, so we're kind of in a weird limbo area with things that have gone on with pistol braces. And of course, there was, you know, the so-called amnesty, you know, registration and uh, for the form ones and all that. And then that kind of gets put on hold. And so what's what has gone on and what is going on and where do you see us going in the future, because that's, I mean, you want to talk about literally tens of millions of people affected by that. I mean, that's the brace stuff is huge right now.
3: Yeah, brace uh, stuff
2: has always been huge.
1: Uh G- yeah.
3: the GAO I think estimated between 10 and 40 million braces in circulation.
1: Which let's just for a second like 10 and 40 million like could could your gap be any larger, <laughs> you what's, know? What's the percentage differential but, you know, there? Right, <laughs> you know what? Exactly. Let's
3: let's even give them the benefit of the doubt and go with 10 million. That seems to meet the def- uh, definition of uh, common, common usage use. to me.
2: I mean, yeah. Well, yeah. You'd think. I mean, it's what you get for Kitano thinking. Katano said 200,000 stun guns was yeah. Common. So now we're into the millions? Absolutely. Uh, so the brace issue is a fascinating one. It's one I've been writing about since I actually started practicing laws. <laughs> first first blog articles I ever wrote were about the braces. <laughs> and then I came to my first SHOT show in 2014, and I met Alex Bosco, the guy who founded SB Tactical. Yeah. Um, and so I've, I've had a good relationship with him for a number of years, and this issue has been... Uh, something I've unfortunately been involved with for a very long time. So right now, that's up on appeal in the Fifth Circuit. Our yeah. case is that anyway, I believe it's consolidated with another. And you'll have to forgive me. There's 58 active cases. so you I can't you, <laughs> You've got a little on your plate. We'll, we'll yeah. let you I'm slide. Gonna, I'm going to do my best. But <laughs> essentially, uh, you know, over the summer, uh, there were two injunctions, three injunctions, granted, um, that said no ATF like your fi- final rule. We're, we're enjoying it for right now. Um, I believe the judge in our case, actually, after the Fifth Circuit, did some things came back and said, okay, I'm not going to grant your preliminary injunction, which was interesting because she was following exactly what the fifth circuit said up until the point where she had to rule on her preliminary injunction. So that's currently up on appeal. I did see an email in my inbox this morning, actually from the attorney handling that matter. I just haven't read it yet. <laughs> well, quick whip out <laughs> your phone. And I let just turned on. it off for the podcast <laughs> too. <laughs> just hold it up to the lens. <laughs> we'll read it for you. No, so <laughs> I, I would expect though, however, again, given that it's in the fifth circuit um, and it's not a second amendment challenge. Uh, We didn't raise, Mm -hmm. uh, well, we might have raised the Second Amendment in ours, actually, but a lot of it was based on the Administrative Procedures Act uh, and whether or not um, you know ATF's actions consistent with what the APA says their authority is. As mm-hmm. The same as you know the, a lot of all the bump stock cases. I don't think any of the bump stock cases raised the Second Amendment. They were all simply APA related Pr- cases.
3: Procedural. What can a regulatory agency
2: do? And yes. What can't they do? And right now, uh, you know, particularly Chevron deference, the Supreme Court is uh, you know heard a case dealing yep. with Chevron. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not that survives. Uh, that has allowed these administrative agencies, not just ATF but others, to just run rampant with. Well, we're the experts in. This and and Congress, like you delegated us this authority and a lot of them are going beyond what Congress actually delegated to them.
1: Well, and it's interesting. I watched, uh, it was actually a reel that came up while I was eating breakfast this morning and I I can't remember who the, the Congress critter was that
3: was talking um, but I, would, <laughs> I would love to see your reels. I am sure it is ninety percent guns and ten percent puppies. <laughs> y- yeah, you're absolutely right. Because well, I do you love need my something puppies. for sanity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: um, but but it was uh, it, it was one of these Congress critters. It was grilling uh, ATF head Steve Dettelbach, mm-hmm. um, and and he was talking about. They were specifically talking about the braces, and it was very clear that the member of Congress had absolutely no concept of what the brace was, how it worked anything it did. And, you know, give credit where credit is due. Dettelbach did an, an amazing job of, of being very diplomatic and basically being like, You have no clue what you're talking about. And, like, you know Congress is clueless when you find yourself siding with the head of the ATF on something (laughs) with this, you 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 know? know? Congress
3: is clueless when Dettelbach comes across as the expert on gun things.
1: Right, yes. And that's kind of where we were when I was watching this reel, and I was like, holy crap, I I never thought I would agree with Dettelbach (laughs) on anything. But I was, like, nodding my head, like, okay, okay, Uh.
3: you know? You know, (laughs) just talk The the mess of you know and and what his reels look like got me thinking of something. (laughs) One, you know, we we know that one of the larger rights groups in our industry is kind of under a little bit of fire right now, both internally and externally. Mm. And there's been some positives and some negatives that have come out of that. But for me, I think one of the biggest positives is the SAF is finally getting its due because everybody looks at these cases over the last well, 50 years for sure, but definitely the last 20. And it's like, oh, NRA is protecting our rights. Like, no, do you know who actually brought that case? Do you know who did the legwork? And it's always been, always been the SAF doing it. And the fact that now you're getting the attention, I'm hoping that you're also getting some of the the, the love in your your donation inbox as well. We're working on it. Um, Because, I mean, you guys have been carrying the water for us for decades and not always getting the love for it. So I just, I want to, your work is being recognized by some of us and we are
2: so appreciative for everything you guys do. No, oh, well, thank you. You know, we we certainly appreciate the the recognition. The one thing that you know, when I came on board uh, in November 2022, I was looking at the organization and, and thinking, okay, I'm here to help run it, and eventually, from what I understand, run the organization after Alan, you know, steps steps down or or back anyway. And so one of the things I, I noticed was, okay, we are, our, our brand looks a little tired. Uh, we updated that. We updated the website. We made it easier to navigate. We put individual case pages on there uh, so that you can actually read what our cases are about. There's a little summary. You can go to the docket and see all the filings. But also our outward communications and how we're communicating and interacting with people. So yeah. that's... It took longer than I would like, uh, and a lot of that is still under underway uh as far as the the calm side of stuff but we're we're getting better we're getting stronger, we have a lot of ideas for this year and, and we're hoping that as we continue to beat that drum and tell people not only where we've been but w- what we're currently doing and where we're going that that recognition will in time you know increase as well yeah well, that's awesome, and you know uh, congratulations on on fifty years
1: of, of well done um you know uh, Unfortunately, I I wish we weren't going to need you for another 50 years, but, you know, looking forward to the next 50 of of you fighting (laughs) for us. I'm still glad to have him, though. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So we we appreciate everything that you and and SAF are doing, um, and we appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to come and join us on the show. So uh, Adam Kraut, Executive Director of the Second Amendment Foundation, thanks so much for coming on the show
2: today. Yeah, thank you for having me, guys.
1: Well, that's it for this episode of the No Low Ballers podcast. We appreciate all of you tuning in on all of the various platforms. We really appreciate you joining us for this ride each and every week. Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite platform. You can find us uh, all of the videos on YouTube and and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. Listen and make sure you're subscribed there. Leave us some likes and comments. Uh, We do read the comments. We do respond to them. Um, We just really appreciate you guys tuning into the show each and every week because without you there is no us so thank you from the bottom of our hearts Uh, that is it for this week and we will see you right here next week on the next episode of the no low ballers podcast